0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 30A, an interview on Silent Cal with David Greenberg. I'm excited to welcome David Greenberg to the show today. David is a professor of history and journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. He's also author of both Calvin Coolidge and Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency, which examines the rise of the White House spin machine. And we're going to talk a little bit about both of these topics today. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, uh, thanks for reaching out. Glad to be on the show. So the, the first question I have to ask is, what inspired your interest in Calvin Coolidge?
1: Well, you actually uh, just hit on it, in a way. Um, from uh, some time ago, I was thinking about a book about presidential spin and tracing its history, which is something that really had never been done before. Uh, There were sort of books about individual presidents and their media relations, but nobody had really kind of tried to tell the overarching story. And uh, at the same time, a series was coming out from uh, Times Books, uh, edited by the late great Arthur Schlesinger, the historian, and I was approached to write for the series. And it's actually kind of a funny story because I was all uh, excited. And uh, then when I sat down to lunch with the editor, he proposed that I write the volume about William Henry Harrison. Mm. And William Henry Harrison, as listeners may know, was president for all of one month. Yeah. <laughs> Short book, easy money. <laughs> right. So I, I was actually a little insulted and I was said, oh, no, no, it's because your last book, my first book was a study of Nixon's image. Mm-hmm. You know, your last book was all about image and the 1840 campaign was the log cabin and a hard cider campaign where they basically tried to reinvent uh, Harrison as a man of the people to kind of take advantage of this new Jacksonian populist mass democratic, you know, zeitgeist that was around in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, maybe there's someone else who's kind of we could think about. I kind of countered with John F. Kennedy, he taken, spoken for uh, my doctoral advisor, uh, Alan Brinkley, uh, was was committed to doing Kennedy. So then I thought of Coolidge because I, I knew enough about Coolidge to know that he was a kind of unsung, uh, underappreciated practitioner of spin in yeah. the time of the 1920s which, you know, we think of now as long ago, a century ago, but was really this great age of of mass media and advertising. You know, this was when Madison Avenue was getting to be a thing and public relations. And so I thought I could sort of use Coolidge as a way to explore, among other things, uh, sort of the rise of, of presidential spin. And I also thought, frankly, not to sort of sell my subject short, you know, there are many presidents about whom you really want to read a kind of Ron Chernow-sized, meaty you know, <laughs> biography. Yeah. And so you don't necessarily want to write Kennedy or FDR for this series because these are short books. Right. Whereas Coolidge, you do not want to read an 800 page book. Most <laughs> people do not. And yeah. this is and actually, I thought, would be the right length a length at which you can learn what you need to know about Coolidge. I could put forward some original interpretation, introduce readers to some of this work in public relations that he was very good at, and um, do a number of things at once with this uh, short book. So that's that's how I wound up writing the American President's series volume about Calvin Coolidge.
0: I'm going to say that you uh, interpreted the opportunity there perfectly. I have read the American President series on on Coolidge and William Henry Harrison and folks of that. And when I get to Lincoln, I buy a bigger book. So <laughs> well exactly. done. Well done.
1: Exactly. And it's interesting, you know, Arthur Schlesinger gave uh, the Lincoln assignment to his friend George McGovern, which mm. was sort of an odd... Uh, choice. McGovern actually does have, or did have, a PhD in history, though. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't a completely insane assignment, but you know, of all the Lincoln books out there, it's not one that you you hear people talk about that right, much.
0: Right, right, because frankly, there's just so many. <laughs> um, but so I, I'd love to talk about this. This is perfect the way this this all feeds together because this this Coolidge and how he evolves presidential spin and PR and takes advantage of all these new. Uh, mediums of communication is, is really what I want to chat about uh, and, and when I'm reading about Coolidge I feel like I'm almost getting a, a story of, of almost two different people you know I get this one set of stories about him being this dour stick in the mud and I see this other set of stories oh he's really really funny he's, he's this great guy and and I'm wondering what's real what is the spin from from his side or the other side you know what's real so let's let's just back up when does calvin Coolidge this quiet guy from a small town in Vermont, have an aha moment about what good public relations and marketing can do for his political career?
1: Well, you know, I think it is a bit more complicated than a single aha moment. Yeah. I mean, one thing I argue in the book and and really in the Republic of Spin as well, is that the notion of Uh, You know, it kind of goes back to Plato that there's sort of a reality and an image. And the image is a deception or a distortion that sort of masks or uh, obscures the reality. Mm -hmm. And I I think, in fact, the relationship is somewhat different. The spin, the image is really an expression of something genuine and authentic within the person. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's partial, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't see everything there is to see and know about a public figure in yeah. their public image. But when a public image is persuasive, when it's effective, it's usually because it expresses something that's that's really there. Mm-hmm. And so I think in Coolidge, Coolidge's case, um, this public image of Silent Cal yeah. did reflect. You know, he was a a modest man, soft-spoken, rather withdrawn, not necessarily the type who would be, uh, uh, you know, a first, uh, you wouldn't necessarily think of him as a politician for his career. Um, At the same time, you see in high school, in college, he was a a very good um, debater, orator, Mm Uh, You know, in those days, they took all these classes in rhetoric and declamation. And, you know, they had a whole series of different courses about public speaking. And he was he always won prizes for his public speech making. So he did understand methods of self-presentation, which, you know, even before mass media, you can argue are a form of spin. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, how we present ourselves when we give a speech, We Talk in a program like this, you know, it, there's going to be some difference from how we speak uh, to, you know, our spouse or our family or in, among friends in a totally private uh, situation. Um, so there's always going to be some awareness. I think for Coolidge, an important moment came in uh, 1920. Uh, he was governor of Massachusetts. And there had been a police strike in Boston uh, that was very controversial because, you know, when the police go on strike, it's kind of a signal for criminals to come out of the woodwork. Not uh, great. <laughs> you're not great. And and sometimes I think he's been misunderstood as, you know, some arch conservative hostile to labor, which was not really his politics. But he did come down hard uh, on the police uh the police had the police all fired and sort of said, there is no right to strike against the public safety. And right. that was kind of a quote that, uh, you know, attached to him and, and, and you know, kind of elevated him to the point where he was being talked about as a presidential contender in the 1920 Republican, um, you know, convention, uh, pursuit of the nomination. And it was then that he actually works with a man named Bruce Barton. Yeah. who uh, is kind of a famous advertising PR guy of the era. And, you know, the work is nothing that um, radical or, or or dramatic. He's He puts out a speech, a book of Coolidge speeches called Have Faith in Massachusetts. <laughs> These are distributed to um, uh, the members, all the delegates at the convention. Mm. So there is some kind of publicity operation going on in the hope of getting him Uh, chosen. He's not chosen, obviously, as the presidential nominee, but he does get on the ticket as the vice presidential nominee. And that's eventually how he becomes president when Warren Harding in 1923 dies. So um, I would say that certainly by 1920, he's aware of PR. He's working with PR men, or at least Bruce Barton, um, to think about his image, to think about how he's going to Uh, kind of elevate his profile and fashion and image uh, for political success.
0: Now, maybe this is me stereotyping a bit, but when I hear of someone with a nickname Silent Cal, that's a nickname that evokes not wanting to do anything with media marketing or ads. You know, (laughs) you picture a guy who just wants to stay to himself, doesn't want to be photographed. So I'm curious if we have any sense of, did he have to be like kind of talked into this at all and, and working with Barton and putting out these pieces I, I also think of, say, uh, the stories about Richard Nixon in the first debate being told, put on makeup and him being like, no. And then he looked horrible. And then he's like, OK, I'll wear makeup next time. Well, you know, was there, were there any kind of moments like that? Was there any talking into that was required to get him to, to buy into this? Well, I mean, he he was in some ways, I think, uh, a skeptic
1: of uh, salesmen, of people sort of who had, uh, you know, some some great remedy for Uh, you know, turning things around. He really believed that his own beliefs and his own record should be what uh, shines through. Uh, And there are times where he reminded me of Nixon. Uh, For example, in Nixon's Shadow, my first book, I made much of a famous story where Nixon, you know, who was always so awkward and, and ungainly before the cameras, envied the Kennedys, and mm-hmm. how casual and how great they always look. And so once when he was at his Western White House in San Clemente, California, called all the reporters and photographers to a bluff where they could come see him walking along the beach. And he comes out walking in wingtips and trousers. <laughs> like, so he doesn't look Kennedy-esque. Right. Nixon yeah. looks like someone trying to look Kennedy. Yes. <laughs> the, the effort is very visible, like yeah. the, you know, the labors. And there's actually some moments like that with Coolidge, too. Um, you know, he spends a lot of time at his father's farm in Vermont, which yeah. is on the site where he was born. Yeah. And there are these films, you can see them on YouTube, where he's like, for the newsreels, playing farmer. But again, he's wearing like business shoes and he's got this very odd looking smock on. He doesn't look like, you know, Joe Farmer out there. Right. Um, You know, but he 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 gave himself over to it pretty readily. I mean, the photographers and remember, Mm -hmm. the 20s was a decade. Photography was getting really big. Mm -hmm. Uh, The technology was changing so you could splash these pictures on the front page of. The newspapers mm-hmm. this was the era when the tabloids were getting to be a thing ah, you know? yeah. yeah, so he understands photography, and they would always want him to pose, and he was always willing to put on these costumes like that made for great pictures, so at one point he's made an honorary member of the Sioux. Nation, the Indian. Yeah, oh my God.
0: Yes. And,
1: you know, he's out there. He's got the whole headdress on. Yes, yes. I mean, these days he would get canceled for it. Yeah. But, you know, the Sioux celebrated this. They, you know, and, and there's some other shots of him kind of wearing um, like chaps and spurs, like in this cowboy regalia. Mm. Uh, he just, he understood, okay, that getting that picture in the paper is important. And he, he sort of would dress up and, looks kind of silly to right. us anyone right. at the time, but you know, he went for it. So so he was actually quite accommodating. Now that's that's you asked about silent, you know, that's more um visual. But even with the the, the verbal, there is a little bit of a paradox because yes by temperament he was um you know somewhat taciturn, like not not the most uh chatty fellow. Mm-hmm. But he understood what the presidency and what politics demanded. So, for example, he gave press conferences with yeah. greater frequency than any other president. Like, mm. I, he basically held them twice a week, personally, yeah. held them twice a week with the reporters, you know, not turning it over to his press secretary, as later yeah. presidents would do. And he was out there answering questions. Um, he went on radio, you know, mm-hmm. another non silent.
0: Uh (laughs) Um, here's calvin coolidge 30 seconds of silence no just kidding (laughs) yeah
1: yeah yeah. so so exactly so he's very um uh aware of the power of presidential speech of what teddy roosevelt called the bully pulpit yep and you know he, he he uses it to to the best of his ability and as i said he had been a champion speaker debater and so on so he was actually you know known to give Good speeches. Um, Number of times where he's kind of the uh, the first, like the first to have his inaugural address broadcast on radio, the first to have his acceptance address of the party nomination broadcast on radio. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's using his voice, uh, he's using his words to communicate far and wide. Again, in a way that's really. Innovative and groundbreaking because because this is the moment, in the 1920s, you know, when radio is becoming a thing and yeah. entering every household.
0: It's it's interesting how like these stories keep making me think of other presidents who have used these techniques too. Like you mentioned the farm, I think of uh, when I was growing up, uh, George Bush Jr. always going to the ranch in Crawford, making sure people got video of him looking like a common guy working on the ranch, you know. Um, and then the pictures makes me think of Teddy Roosevelt who always wanted to have a camera around <laughs> on his adventures. Uh, I, I'm, I'd love to dive more into. So this is what Calvin Coolidge is doing. How novel or unique is that to what's going on around him? What did the state of political spin look like in the 1920s? Uh, you've talked about some of these things like press conferences. He's doing them all the time. They're less than a decade old. Radio is brand new. Motion picture is starting to spread. How were people using these new technologies? And how was the American consumption of media changing at this time?
1: Right. Good, good set of questions. And, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you um, situating it in its historical time period is exactly right. I mean, this, yeah, you know, I really credit Theodore Roosevelt and then Woodrow Wilson after him as being the most important pioneers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones who sort of, it's not just about the technology. They're the ones who have a conception of the presidency as a job that represents all the people and speaks to all the people. Um, So people may not be aware. And one reason that we don't remember that many of the 19th century presidents Mm -hmm. is because the job of the president was understood very differently. And Congress was really the central driver of policy policy legislation, of course. I mean, that's its constitutional role. Um, but Theodore Roosevelt comes along and says, no, the president really is the one who's directly elected by all the people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's not just answerable to some portion, uh, one state or one district. The president's elected by everyone and wants to go out and take his message out far and wide and to use this kind of claim of popular support, you know as a way of driving the agenda and And Woodrow Wilson, who was himself a political scientist and and an expert on the presidency no, from a no. scholarly point of view, feels the same way. I mean they, there are some important differences between the two, but they both think the president is really, especially now that we have this big, complicated society with all these new economic and social problems to be solved, that it has to be solved from Washington, has to be solved by the president in particular, and that engaging with public opinion is really the way to do it. So they're the ones who I think are sort of the the more important innovators in that sense. Um, but Coolidge, look, you can, you can either learn from what your predecessors have done or or not learn. I mean, Mm -hmm. one reason Taft, who came between Mm -hmm. uh, Roosevelt and Wilson, uh, wasn't a successful president. One reason I think, you know, I don't deal with him much in my Republican spin book is he kind of wanted to go back to this 19th century conception of the presidency in many ways. And Coolidge, you know, at least recognizes Times have changed. We have these new media of radio, of uh, motion pictures, as you say, and the newsreels that everybody's watching. Uh, And also, you know, the nature of newspapers has changed so that, um, you know, it's a faster paced publication schedule. Uh, There's a bit more sensationalism and focus on celebrity in the 20s, that whole kind of modern ethos of, um, you know, the jazz age, the influence of Hollywood. Um, You know, if you think about it, uh, another sign of the times, um, uh, uh, Will Hayes, who was the chairman of the Republican National Committee, goes to Hollywood and to oversee the motion picture industry. He's the one who the Hayes Code is named after that, you know, regulated what could be shown in terms of sexual behavior. So politics and Hollywood, there's a real sort of interchange between them. Um, Even before the Jazz Singer, which is 1927, credited as the first sound film,
0: Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm.
1: Calvin Coolidge gives a sound film, makes a sound film from the White House lawn that they managed to... Uh, get sound film and record cool. a speech of him where he's speaking yeah. and he's being filmed. Again, you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's a little boring by today's <laughs> today. Loses uh, the plot in the middle,
0: but you know, <laughs> yeah,
1: and you know, and the, the, it helps you think about well, how has has it changed? So presidents today, they always think about like their backdrop and the lighting, and you know, there's all these other things yeah. that go into any yeah. presidential yeah. speech that maybe Coolidge wasn't yet. Uh, concerned with, but he is very much kind of keeping up with what is cutting edge in communications, and um, you know, in that respect, uh, you know, he is, I think, very much on top of things, and it, you know, has to be kind of considered uh, an innovator. Uh, so, so um, yeah, you can learn a lot from his his use of of radio and and, and film and so forth.
0: Well, I'm curious, was this era of going into this increased radio, motion picture, and people consuming media that way, is it kind of comparable to what we've seen in the past 20 years in the spread of internet and social media apps and all that, and just this, this huge shift and change into how people consume stuff? Is, is there a comparison to me made there?
1: Yeah, oh, very much so. I mean, you know, 1922 is often credited as the year that radio really kind of first starts to get a foothold. So you could find, you know, a few um, speeches of Wilsons, for example, that mm-hmm. are reported to have been uh, sent over the wireless. And like they're <laughs> not even necessarily using ra- the term radio yet. Yep. And they don't have these stations in different cities with their specific frequencies, this is all kind of getting sorted out um, in the 20s. And, you know, so by Coolidge's presidency, you know, as I say, he gives like a say the union address to congress right. let's get that on the radio yeah um, now the thing that's different so again it's drawn the internet comparison or social media sure, sure. Uh, look at you know obama had a twitter account for mm-hmm. 8 years
0: yeah
1: yeah uh, you know, i bet nobody listening can remember a single tweet uh, <laughs> single thing you can read about yeah. because he basically used it as just a form of press release. It would be like snippets from a press release or short things that you just want to communicate from the white house press office. Um, And then Trump comes along and Trump understands that Twitter is a particular medium. I mean, whether he understands this uh, intellectually or just sort of intuitively, you know, is, is, is not clear, but he understands it's meant for people like him who are angry and impulsive and reactive and and want to communicate briefly and full of emotion, like all those qualities of Trump's style, you know, seem kind of built for Twitter. There's a happy convergence. So we call him, we think of him as the first Twitter president, even though Obama was using it for, for eight years. And I think, If you look ahead to Franklin Roosevelt, he's Mm, the one who really takes radio and not only just hooks up a wire and broadcasts his inaugural speech across the country, as Coolidge did, but who writes a speech for radio, these famous fireside chats, who imagines his listener as someone sitting home by the fireside with the radio on, and he's talking to that person as opposed to Coolidge, who's giving like a classical speech of the sort he was maybe taught to give in high school or college. <laughs> right. Right, as this champion and now speaker.
0: Now a box that's carried across the country, yeah.
1: Right, but doesn't think about this more conversational tone. Yeah. Um, this kind of uh, more familiar quality and brief. I mean, those fireside chats were very short. So uh, oratory is starting to change because radio has certain yeah. – um strictures as a medium or or I should say it, it prefers if we can animate it that way if radio prefers certain kinds of delivery to others. So so Coolidge is very important, but uh it's really not mastered until FDR comes along. And I do think that's like yeah. quite analogous to the way we think about uh changes in uh internet, social media communications and the developments that we've seen with, you know, newer politicians coming along and finding more in there to yeah. uh, exploit and take advantage of.
0: I, I think that's a great analogy, Coolidge to FDR, as Obama to uh, Trump. Uh, as you I, no, nope, I could not name a single Obama tweet ever. I'll never remember anything Obama tweeted, but I'll never forget called Fefe. So. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So. Is there anything else Coolidge did that was new, or is that kind of the the limit of where he carried the baton?
1: Well, uh, he he actually is uh, innovating in other ways. Um, He uses uh, a speechwriter, a man named Judson Welliver, who um, is a former journalist who comes to the White House staff, and he doesn't have the title of speechwriter, but you know, it's understood that's part of his role. And, uh, you know, years later, when they kind of formed a society of former presidential speechwriters in Washington, D.C., I think William Sapphire of the Nixon administration was one of the founders. They called it the Judson Welliver Society. <laughs> so, nice. so uh, yeah, he's using speechwriters, He's using um, PR people. I mean, another person besides... Uh, Bruce Barton, he relied on was Edward Bernays. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernays is very famous in public relations. He was nephew of Sigmund Freud, Mm -hmm. came to America when he was, uh, you know, a tiny boy. So uh, grew up in America, you know, educated, uh, I think at Cornell. Um, And Bernays wanted to sort of take the insights of Freud and psychoanalysis and sort of apply them to public relations.
0: Yeah. I think I remember his name in like psychology class in college, like come up, come up in the, how were people applying psychology to ads and marketing and PR?
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's others in the twenties who are doing this, a guy named um, Watson, who's kind of more behaviorist, but you know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's various efforts to bring psychological insights to bear on sales and yeah. again, this is a decade of like uh, Dale Carnegie, you know, how to win friends and influence people, kind of that salesman yeah. ethos. Um, and, yes, you know, Bernays has quite the reputation, but some of it, I think, was kind of ironically enough, his own PR. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, I've looked at his work. I don't see like a lot of really deep, sophisticated Um, use of Freud in what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, what he liked to do was stuff that was kind of misdirection. Um, You know, selling people something by seeming like you're selling them something else. So, for example, uh, women were coming to smoke a lot in the 1920s. There's a few famous stories about this. But one is he sort of um, started actually by using his secretary in a kind of subterfuge by having um, sort of women want to partake in like a a march of the freedom that spoke uh, down Fifth Avenue and sort of winds up getting all this publicity. And this is he's doing this on behalf of the American Tobacco Company. But he also would do things like try to convince restaurants, which he did successfully, to put Cigarettes on their menus as dessert. Uh, what? As, yeah. I mean, this was the idea that, you know, cigarettes could be a hunger, you know, um, resistant, you know, tool against hunger. And, you know, body image for women was a thing very much in the 20s. As, yeah. Yeah. You know, it has been since. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of these stories sometimes uh, you – you know, you don't see the hard proof of how effective these uh, sales techniques sure. are. Some sure. of them, some of them may have worked, others may not have. But it's a little bit, um, a little bit different from the Bruce Barton method, which was kind of more um, a bit of a hard sell. Uh, kind mm. of this is this is who you are. And when you uh, see the Silent cow image that Barton had cultivated, there was some. Worry in the nineteen twenty-four campaign that Coolidge was seen as too withdrawn, sort of too silent, right, um, right? And they wanted to sort of perk him up a little bit. I mean, Coolidge agreed that he he should sort of try to be uh, a, a little more uh, warm and sunny and friendly. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually not Barton, but Bernays who he brings on. They stage a stunt at the White House. Uh, and this is kind of classic Bernays where a whole bunch of Broadway actors and Broadway actors in those days tend to be Republican, take a night train down from, uh, New York, show up at the white house in the morning where, uh, Coolidge and Mrs. Coolidge, really the white house staff serve them a good old Vermont breakfast of, you know, griddle pancakes.
0: Um,
1: and there's headlines, you know, uh, Coolidge serves Broadway actors pancakes. Present almost laughs. laughs. So it's part of the thing. Oh, yeah, he's a regular guy. He's loosening up. And, right, kind of, right. uh, and 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 so there's a calibration of the image. You know, you don't want to be too withdrawn. Um, you don't want to be phony either and and seem like you're not respecting who what his his innate personality is.
0: So as he's working with you know a speechwriter and and you know, like a PR guy and like these new things that presidents hadn't worked with before and he's putting out these motion pictures and the, these photographs and all this stuff was there anyone out there who was concerned about these developments concerned about what this might mean for democracy whether it's good for us um, one thing I think of I, I think of say in the past twenty years. I remember like Jon Stewart going on Crossfire and being like, this is bad for democracy or questioning like, why do we have a spin room after debates? That doesn't seem healthy. You know, was there anyone like that who, who's just like raising their hands and being like, is any of this good for us? Or I, I don't like this or anything like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a
1: whole uh, literature uh, that comes out of the 20s, journalists, philosophers, uh, critics who are very much aware of this culture of it was a, a, a good twenties term is ballyhoo, uh-huh. uh, and there was a writer named Silas Bent who wrote a book called Ballyhoo. That's
0: you know sort of a critique of the whole uh, culture. And how do they define ballyhoo? What, what how would that be defined? <laughs> so ballyhoo
1: kind of uh, you know it's just another word for promotion or okay. uh, publicity, but it kind of captures like that raw raw booster-ish <laughs> um, quality. Yeah. Uh, hype might yeah. be a good uh, synonym. And it, it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, coming out of World War One, there was a great concern about what they called propaganda. Yeah. Um, I mean, originally it had been German propaganda because mm-hmm. we were being inundated with German propaganda to stay mm-hmm. out of the war. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. once we decide to go to war, um, There's an American propaganda campaign that the government oversees and also a lot of private propaganda, Hollywood and others get in on the act. Um, And then after the war, there's kind of buyer's remorse and we sort of blame the propaganda for Ah. having led us into war, even though, you know, people people wanted you know thought it was the right decision. Germany did have to be stopped. They were sinking our ships I mean it wasn't it, it wasn't really the wrong decision to enter World War one but right. people it didn't work out the way we wanted. It didn't lead to this flowering of democracy the way Wilson right. had hoped
0: right um
1: so propaganda then in business we see uh you know the rise of what were first called press agents and then publicity mm-hmm. men or public relations men so there's an awareness that you know, and advertising too, of course, that we're we're being sold all this stuff. And there's an awareness that people have that this can't be you know <laughs> uh, healthy or just yeah. a straightforward matter. So um, you know, one great um, set of critics are people like Walter Lippmann and John Dewey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, Dewey's a philosopher, Lippmann's uh, a very philosophically inclined journalist, um, they're writing about this, um, HL Mencken, the journalist is, and also in my book, I kind of write about sort of the debate between, really between Lippmann and Mencken, but Dewey's in the mix too, about, okay, Mm -hmm. so what should democracy look like? I mean, it Mm -hmm. forces Mm -hmm. people to start mapping out, okay, what's wrong with democracy? Um, are people easily fooled by hype, mm-hmm. Ballyhoo, word, image, symbol? Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, you know, what can we do to kind of strengthen people's uh defenses sure. or at yeah. least their understanding of what it means to be a citizen that they can sort of better better uh cope with this kind of barrage of words and images that they now confront uh all the time? I mean, it's it's actually strikingly modern. When yeah. you read the debates that they have, like ha- how, you know, even though this was a hundred years ago, it, it, it sound very much like debates we could be having today.
0: Did, did all this uh, ballyhoo and another press and material put about, out about Coolidge, did this make your job harder to research Coolidge when you're working on your book, when you start seeing so much stuff and you're, and you're trying to figure out what's puff, what's artifice, what's real?
1: I, I guess so in some ways. I mean, uh, whenever you work with sources, you sort of want to try to understand who's the audience or what is meant, you know what what, what message is, is intended? like what are they trying to put across and how might that be um, again, not necessarily false, but a, a kind of partial, uh, representation of what the person really is or stands for. Um, so I think that's always something uh, one thinks about. Um, and but you know that in a way that's true even in um, you know earlier times that that people sometimes know not to commit certain things to paper. Uh, <laughs> even even thinking about historians, you know, yeah, coming yeah. to read it that that there's sort of an awareness of um what should and should not be said uh outright yeah. uh, on the other hand you know ultimately we do rely on our own uh judgment and when you consume when you read and review you know a whole wide range of sources and how many different kinds of people looked at Coolidge you know you start getting a sense of the man i mean it's it's always i think a bit of a um illusion to think that we truly understand these historical figures. Right. Um, yeah. But, but you spend enough time with them, with different kinds of sources, with their critics, with their admirers. Uh, and you, you start to see certain strains uh, of description that kind of run throughout that say, aha, this, this seems to be something that people agree on as central to this person's personality or his politics or, or his understanding of the world.
0: So, um, you mentioned earlier that, that like what PR can really do is it can kind of shine a light on parts of a personality and and a, cast a shadow of the other, you know, it's more an enhancer than a refabricating something. So when you look at Coolidge, what do you get a sense of? What was the true Coolidge and what was media Coolidge? What what were the differences in those? And, and I particularly kind of mind the things I mentioned earlier, like, uh, when I see things that where he looks like a real stick in the mud and just a pain in the butt, and and times when people say he's really funny, you know, like what's the real guy? Well, I mean,
1: I think those were both parts of his personality. Um, you know, he 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 was somewhat dour. He was sort of a stick in the mud, but but you know, he could have a sense of humor about it. Uh, you know, there's a great uh joke that he told or story about him. Uh, that seems to have been genuine. <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't know. If it's apocryphal when it emerges sometime later. But he's at an event and a woman sort of, you know, and his reputation as being laconic and so on right. preceded right. him. The people, the public thought of him this way. And so this woman comes up to him and says, Mr. President, you know, I uh, made a bet with my husband that I could get you to say more than two words this evening. And he looks at her and he says, you lose. Um, (laughs) You know, like, is that the stick in the mud or is that the guy who has a wry sense of humor? It's sort of both. Yeah. Uh, So I, I do think, I I do think, you know, you read, and I sort of read all the existing biographies of Coolidge as well as many magazine profiles. So I felt I had a pretty good sense of the man's um, personality. Um, I think, you know, a good way of understanding the the seeming paradox about him was what William Allen White, who was a leading journalist of the era, uh, a term he used, he called Coolidge the Puritan in Babylon.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) So Babylon being the kind of roaring 20s, a period Uh, when, you know, things were opening up. I mean, despite Mm -hmm. prohibition, it was a time of changing sexual mores um even improvement in race relations even though maybe not so much in the deep south but if you think of the harlem renaissance and Mm -hmm. uh uh, you know what's going on in a number of cities um a time of real creative uh ferment uh a time of kind of go-go capitalism where all kinds of consumer goods like wristwatches and candy bars and stuff are now sort of things that people are buying regularly, mm. um, Say nothing of radio. and, and right. So all of this, there's this real dynamism to the decade. And a lot of people felt that this kind of carried with it a risk of a sort of moral decay. You know, and we, we've seen this in our own times, kind of coming yeah. out of the 60s, or even more recently, changes in... Attitudes toward sexuality. A lot of the country starts to feel like, oh, you know, we're we're headed for perdition or something like <laughs> right. that, uh, or you know, or at least have their worries that 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 we're losing our moral bearings. And so Coolidge, uh, William Allen White, said, and and Lippmann wrote a, a similar essay, kind of provided a sense of moral rootedness. He was an anchor. Hmm. Mm, He was someone we could look to as a man of probity, of sound values, a bit old fashioned. Um, He wasn't, though, trying to like turn back the clock on the 20s. You know, he wasn't um, kind of fulminating the way certain, uh, you know, evangelical preachers of the period were about all the the rot and decadence. Um, But he was sort of quietly superintending it, making sure the economy stayed strong trying to offer a kind of restrained moral vision that was you know maybe a little Puritan but not um, again not um harsh or or denunciatory yeah and um, this this kind of comforted people this kind of made people feel like he was a man they could trust he also I should say comes into office right after the teapot dome scandal <laughs> yes. that- you know uh, people don't remember much about, but was, you know, until Watergate for 50 years, it was kind of the big scandal and really devastated the Harding administration. Coolidge has it investigated. Mm -hmm. He kind of is seen as like a counterpoint as a man, again, of moral rectitude who's not corrupt. And so so for all these reasons, he sort of presides over America in the twenties, a strong economy, Mm-hmm. A, a growing culture, lively culture, and so even though he's on the conservative side of things, um, he kind of makes people feel like the country's going to be okay because he's yeah. he's got his you know hand at the tiller in the White House, and and I think that sort of captures these contradictions and shows how um, you know they are sort of reconciled in his in his personality as well as in his public image.
0: You mentioned several times the the strong economy of the 1920s, which which in many ways made all this change in media stuff like it was all entwined in that and made it possible and they fed each other. I I feel like one of the important aspects of Coolidge PR was the idea of Coolidge prosperity, you know, taking ownership for that, but but the strong economy of the 20s. I'm curious, what do you think? How much credit does he really deserve for the strong economy of the 20s? And on the flip side, how much blame do you think he deserves for the Great Depression that hit like, you know, a few months after he left office? Right. You know, I, uh, I think with all presidents, we
1: probably give them too much credit and too much blame uh, for the fortunes of the economy. Uh, um, <laughs> there's just so many other factors that uh, play into it. And yet, you know, especially in the 20th century, but even even in the 19th century, people want the president to uh, you know solve these problems. It's almost kind of mystical. it's like this yes. you know, father figure role, king role, mm. um, we impute more power to the president more kind of single-handed power than yeah. he really has. At the same time, economic policy matters yeah. um, I think. It's often a mistake to see what happened in the eventuality and then say, "Aha, we should have seen this coming."
0: Sure. And sure.
1: this is just a fallacy we always make. I mean, people tried to like pin 9/11 on George W. Bush, and I'm no particular fan of George W. Bush, but it's it's just a historical um, yes, there were certain warnings that came in, but there were also lots of other messages that came in. Yeah. And there's a, it's sort of a trick of the mind that in retrospect, we kind of can pick out and see the clues. But um, unless there were other people pointing to those clues and those clues alone, mm-hmm. um, it, it's very hard to, say, to, to blame someone for having missed them. Or we see this with other economic crashes or all kinds of events. Now, that said, there were a lot of critics who said, who criticized the Fed's behavior on interest rates, who criticized Coolidge for not doing more to restrain some of the wild speculation that was taking hold in the stock market, um, who uh, pointed out that we need to do more to support particularly the farm economy, which... Mm -hmm. Despite the the uh, general prosperity of the 20s, you know, farmers were still uh, having a rough go of it. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a book called Business Without a Buyer, which sort of yeah. warmed, uh, warned of like overproduction, that we were going to produce so much stuff uh, without the consumer base to keep supporting it. Mm-hmm. And which which is at least one analysis that economic historians have, have given of, of why. The depression happened. Mm -hmm. So some of those criticisms were on the table, um, you know, that, that Coolidge didn't heed. Uh, So it's not altogether unfair to say that he um, missed the boat or, or, you know, could have done differently. Um, You know, at the same time, we don't know. I mean, I think the real test is, is on Hoover, who has the job of trying to find a way out and really can't and won't um, and you know, nineteen thirty-two when he's running for a re-election, things are pretty much as bad as they were in twenty-nine. Whereas FDR, you know, they're not they we're not out of the depression by thirty-six. But at the end of his first term, there's considerable progress, considerably more growth, unemployment's come down, a lot of new programs in place. I mean, there's a lot you can say that he actually did. So I I think. Um, it's much fairer to sort of look at Hoover uh, rather than Coolidge. Although, you know, um, history does, does tell us that different policies at least might have, have pointed us in a different direction in the, in, in the 20s when Coolidge uh, was in power.
0: Well, the next question is a question I like to ask everyone I talk to. And that's what lessons in leadership do you think we could learn from all silent Cal?
1: Well, the, I mean, this is a hard one for me because I really have become almost uh, sort of dogmatic in rejecting the idea of lessons from history. I mean, oh. it, it, it remains a kind of popular um, notion that a lot of people are interested in and understandably so. But, you know, when I look at history, I see such, so many differences between any other period in our own time that I find it hard to sort of transpose, you know, to to you know extract certain uh, behaviors or decisions and sort of find ways that they could be applied to today. Um, I mean, we could say certain things about his personality and leadership style in a very general way, but. Um, but I'm not sure that we would need courage to arrive at those lessons. I mean, for <laughs> example, you know, I do think respecting public opinion, kind of trying to keep one's finger on the pulse of public opinion is an important part of presidential leadership, certainly in the media age of the 20th century. And presidents like, uh, you know, Hoover and Jimmy Carter, who, who couldn't do that or didn't do that, uh, do, do tend to be seen as, as failures. Um, You know there there are aspects of Coolidge's uh, leadership that I think, yeah, you know, at least as he articulated them, that I wouldn't particularly espouse. You know, he liked to say, you know, if you see ten problems coming along the road, you can ignore them because nine will run off into the ditch. Uh, and yeah, you know, pro- probably not the best advice. It seemed. To have served him well in his own
0: presidency, I guess, but maybe that tenth one was the depression. <laughs> so that's the like the one quote. Whenever I think of Coolidge, that's the quote I think of, and I'm just like, can you imagine someone saying that today? <laughs> you know, right, right. I mean,
1: and and he was sort of a, a, in in that sense uh, a throwback to an older conception of the presidency that was more hands off. Um, yeah. And like you have to realize he came after this period of intense activism in the Oval Office, especially Roosevelt and Wilson. So he wasn't wrong to discern that the public kind of wanted a bit of a respite from all this crusading, certainly the 1920 election. That's what the Republicans ran on. A return to normalcy was Harding's phrase. And in a, in a way, Coolidge carried that forward. There are times... Where, where we need a return to normalcy and Joe Biden basically won on a return to normalcy, although kind of defined rather differently in a different, different situation. Um, so perhaps there's, there's some lesson to be gleaned in the appreciation of someone who isn't always trying to kind of make history with some grand sweeping new piece of legislation But again, I tend to think if we subscribe to those lessons, those are lessons shaped by our own politics and ideology rather than by our reading of a particular historical figure. They're lessons sometimes we take to history rather than from history, but we may may imagine we're learning them from history.
0: I appreciate your contrarian take about lessons from history. That's a fun one. To to play over my head. If if you'd like to hear more from David, please check out his books, Calvin Coolidge, Republic of Spin, An Inside History of the American Presidency, or keep an eye out for the book he's currently working on about Congressman John Lewis. You can find him online at davidgreenberg.info. You can also give him a follow on Republic of Spin on Twitter if that platform hasn't just like imploded by the time this episode comes out. Thank you so much for your time, David. Thank you, Kenny. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast, if it still exists. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. It helps me buy books, pay the host of the show, and thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The Music Insights Podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, it's time for the Great Depression. And the man, the wonder, the brilliant Herbert Hoover, who fed starving Europeans during World War I, who brought aid to homeless Americans during the Mississippi flood, who was teasingly called Wonder Boy by his boss, Calvin Coolidge. If anyone can save the country from the Great Depression, it's Hoover, right? Well, we'll give him the old college try next time on a bridge presidential histories.